first of all, let's look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, we're thanking you now for who you are and thanking you for how you work and the power and the way in which the Holy Spirit works within our lives and through our lives. We're asking, Father, in all these services this morning and the wonderful time we await this evening, that you will speak to our hearts very uniquely and very distinctly. Those that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, maybe they've been invited out by friends, might be spiritually curious, trying to understand better what's the purpose of life? Why am I here? Where's all this headed? We'll find that their critical questions are being answered as we open up your word. So, Father, as week by week we open up your word and ponder the significance of what's here, how it relates to our lives. Praying that once again that you would warm these hearts, to engage these minds, you would shape these wills. Once again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a very unique gathering of people in a setting of modern-day Germany, but the time was in 1727. People who loved Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior were being exiled from their various countries because of their devotion to the faith. They needed a place to go. They needed a safe place. They needed a place where they would be loved by other fellow Christians. So they made their way to a setting that was known as Hanhut in Germany. And there in Hanhut, there was one who had purchased property. His last name was Zinzendorf. And Zinzendorf was looking for a way in which he would allow for God's people to come together in Europe, overcome the persecution that seemed to be fast at their heels, and to have a settled conviction that Jesus Christ was alive, Jesus Christ was well, and Jesus Christ was Lord of life. Out of that little grouping of people, some major things began to happen. On August 10th of that year, there was a pastor who was so overcome by the workings of the Holy Spirit that he got up to speak to the exiles that had gathered in handhood, who had come to an inner conviction of their own sense of sinfulness and the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. And on that August of 13th of that day in 1727, we are told, quote, a day of the outpourings of the Holy Spirit came upon that congregation. It was, if you will, a mini Pentecost. These people became known as the joyful people. And they began to share the good news of Jesus Christ and began to move beyond their territories. And most of the 18th century revivals in England and America were influenced by this little group of people that had gathered together on that property. And these people were known as Moravians. A prayer movement began. And for over 100 years, members of this Moravian church prayed nonstop 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that God's work would be known and that the Holy Spirit would be operative. 
a Moravian missionary by the name of Peter Bowler, made his way toward England on a ship, and there he encountered, was it by chance, a man by the name of John Wesley, and began to plant the seeds of biblical truth in the mind of Wesley. Wesley would later write of Bowler, oh, what a work God had begun to do since Mr. Bowler made his way to England. Now, what God is doing is not a mini Pentecost. The passage we're now examining today is the Pentecost. And what we want to do in these 13 verses of this second chapter is to understand that this might very well be dubbed as the greatest revival in all of human history. There is a now and there is a not yet attached to it. The work of the Holy Spirit at that point was an endowment that would lead towards the ultimate work still to come when upon Christ's return. But what I want to do is to draw out principles that are found in these verses. Three aspects of this revival stand out. The first is found in verse 1 down through verse 4. That as you and I, as we consider what we're going to call this morning as the greatest of all biblical revivals. I want you to begin by noting with me here the nature of the work by the Holy Spirit in verse 1 through verse 4. And notice how this begins. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. These are the apostles. They are now settled and centered in Jerusalem. And they are simply awaiting to see what God is going to do within their midst. Now you see that word Pentecost? This was 50 days after Passover. Pentecost has to do with the word 50th. And so literally as a week of weeks after Passover, also known as the Feast of Weeks, best described in Leviticus chapter 23, this gathering was the best attended of the great feasts that the Jewish population would host. People from all over the world would begin to make their way and descend upon the epicenter of the globe, Jerusalem. Traveling conditions are best at that time of year, roughly around the month of June, for people to be able to make the journey. It was the most cosmopolitan of all the festivals, as people from around this countries and of the various languages descended upon Jerusalem at this one particular time, and God in his sovereign purposes chose that moment for the descent of the Holy Spirit upon his people. So now what I want you to see here at this moment is that there's something particular. There's something distinctive. There's something unique that's about to take place. And we're going to have to draw out the applications for modern day life. The day of Pentecost arrived. You can read all about it in Leviticus 23. But notice furthermore that you and I are told that they were all together in one place. That's significant. Everybody's present, nobody's missing among the current followers of Jesus Christ. That's God's sovereign purposes again. This is not an accident in time. This is an appointment with time. God had established in eternity past that this would be the moment. They are all together, and what you and I are told is that they were all together in one place. Now, 
the disciples had seen Jesus Christ ascend into heaven. And Jesus Christ had said to them in verse 4 of chapter 1, You have heard me from me, John baptized with water, but you will be filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And now that day has come. There's a sense of expectation. There's a sense of anticipation. God is about to do something significant that has never taken place before. And he has chosen this rather unruly group of people to be the means by which the gospel is going to go forth to all of the nations. But first of all, he's looking for unity. Prayerful unity. Oneness. As we noted last week, when they gathered together, they gathered together in one accord in prayer. Oneness, connectedness, what believers are to be involved with. I was reading a clip on about the bottom of a swimming pool at the YMCA in a particular town in Illinois, where the builders placed this incredibly beautiful tile emblem and was symbolic of the spiritual heritage of the YMCA. At the center of the emblem is the Bible, down at the bottom of the pool, open to John chapter 17, verse 21. These were the words of Jesus Christ as he spoke to his disciples about a sense of oneness prior to his death, resurrection, and ascension. A little boy, evidently, according to the news, made his way into the water, couldn't make out the wording, so he went to the bottom of the pool, and there he read it. He came up, and he said to the lifeguard, says John 17, 21, but what is that? The lifeguard responded, it's Jesus' words. He said that they may all be one. The boy's words were insightful. You sure have to go through a lot to find that out, he said. Christians oftentimes have to go through deep waters to find that out. A sense of oneness. So thankful for the oneness that the boards and the committees and the teams have demonstrated leading into tonight's gathering. Church values a sense of oneness in a culture and a world filled with division. But that oneness is not self-centered. That oneness is God-centered. Got to be the workings of the Holy Spirit. So there's this sense of oneness now in their midst. We note it in Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer very thankful for the way in which people have been praying constantly, continuously. So, Father, we're asking that this congregation be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. This has been our prayer. And when suddenly now something powerful happens in verse 2, you and I are told that there's nothing gradual here in what's being described. No. God in his sovereign timetable and is able to utilize the word suddenly by the physician Luke to describe the event that unfolds. 
even though the time of eternity even ticking to this very moment. Suddenly, there came from heaven, not from their hearts, not from their own personal desires. No, when God is at work, you see, where the Holy Spirit is operative, there is something which is unmistakable. It's as if the fingerprints of heaven now are being placed upon what the congregation is up to. They're gathered together. The time's right. There's a suddenness to this historic moment. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound. What's that sound like? Notice the word like. Those that have studied the English language, grammar and so on, you know that your English teacher would tell you, well, that's a simile. The word like means something similar to. So now here's Luke the physician, and he's looking for just the right words to get people's attention as they read this. So he says, what's well, like this? Suddenly there came from heaven, not from us, from heaven, a sound. A.T. Robertson, the great grammarian, tells us the word sound carries with the idea of an echo room. So what is now transpiring is that as a sound is being emitted, there's an echo chamber that God is utilizing at this point. Right time, right place, right people. The timing is perfect. It's going to have an echo effect in their ears, on their hearts. And we're told that this sound is like a mighty rushing wind. And here's what fascinates us at this point. In the Old Testament, there is a word for wind named ruah in the Hebrew. The very same word is also used for spirit. Ruah. Wind. Spirit. And furthermore, in the New Testament, written in Greek, the same Greek word is used for both wind and spirit. Now listen to this. You've got to track the wind. Follow the course of direction. I was standing on a pitcher's mound back in my collegiate days. And one thing that pitchers learn is that in order to be able to pitch effectively with the current climate conditions, you're going to have to understand something about the wind. And the way you do it, typically, you turn your back on home plate and you look out at the flagpole off in the distance. If it's still, it tells you something about the air conditions for how far the ball is going to travel. If the flag is blowing such where the wind is coming in with towards home plate. That means then that I'm going to be able to pitch in such a way where I can allow for the ball to be up a little higher because the batter's not going to get enough elevation to hit long distance. Why? Because the wind is working against him. But if the wind is blowing out, on the other hand, I'm going to probably operate in the lower portion of the plate. Because I know if that batter gets any sense of elevation, that ball is going to have a trajectory and it's going to end up somewhere in the bleachers, which when I pitch so often happened. 
But what we have to see here is that there needs to be an incredible discernment of the way in which the wind blows. Now, when Jesus Christ was speaking to a professor of the Old Testament by the name of Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, verse 7, after talking about the idea you must be born again, he used the word wind to describe the works of the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he said in John chapter 3, verse 7. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is interesting is that when John recorded those words, he used wind, he used spirit. It's the same Greek word. All of this was preparatory for what Jesus Christ, upon ascending into heaven, would deliver in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit now coming into the midst of the people. And so now the Holy Spirit is descending. It's descending like a mighty rushing wind. And the thing about the wind is that you need to discern the way in which the wind is moving. Out on the Atlantic, you'll see these gusts. And you watch the brilliance of the sailors as they continue to adjust their mass in order to continue forward movement. And the fishermen that were in that upper room at that point, they understood the wind gusts on the Sea of Galilee. Been there. And so often they were overtaken by the need to make immediate adjustments to the way in which the wind would blow. I know the master plan committee, as we pondered the significance of tonight's gathering, had to ponder the way in which the wind was blowing when all of a sudden we started acquiring properties. Stories told when Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary, first went to China. He went out in a sailing vessel. The biographer tells us that very close to the shore, there was a hostile population waiting for the ship to arrive. The winds had calmed down, slowly drifting shoreward, unable to go about. The captain came to Mr. Taylor, the biographer tells us, using old English language, said, besought him to pray for the help of God. I will, said Taylor, provided you set your sails to catch the breeze. The captain said he didn't want to make a laughingstock of himself by unfurling the mass in a calm, a dead calm. And Taylor said, I will not undertake to pray for the vessel until you prepare the sails. And it was done. And while engaged in prayer, the biographer tells us, there was a knock at the door of his stateroom. Yes. It was the captain's voice that responded, are you still praying for wind, Taylor? Yes, came the response. Well, said the captain, you better stop praying, for we have more wind than we can manage. Quote, unquote. Now at this point, what we see is there's something which is unmanageable in the eyes of humanity, but totally manageable in the workings of God. He's timed this brilliantly and perfectly. He waits for one accord. He waits for the 12th 
apostle, the one that would replace Judas. And now there is true one accord. Judas is no longer there. And so there is this rush, a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, just as at Calvary, where God used natural phenomena, such as the darkening of the skies at the noon hour when the second member of the Trinity was involved with his work in dying in our place for our sins. So likewise, now, God is using natural phenomena to capture the attention as now the third member of the Trinity is at work in a one-time major event known as Pentecost. Fifty days, you see. Fifty days since that point in time when Jesus Christ had died for our sins. The next phenomenon, you're up to verse 3. Divided tongues as of fire. Now you've got wind, you've got fire. We've heard music groups use this combo. Fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Notice now, as this is being described, it's not some of them, it's all of them. And when you see fire in scriptures, you know that that's typically symbolic of and illustrative of God's presence, God's holiness among his people. Think of Moses at the burning bush, where in the midst of his own wilderness experience, where Moses is wondering, can God even use me? God captures his attention through natural phenomena, and he times it perfectly. You might be wondering, how can God use me? Watch the circumstances. Watch the way God works. And so now, what we are told here was as if fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them collectively, yet individually. And then in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So now, filled with the Holy Spirit, something has happened at this point. God is going to give them a capacity as local Galileans that is going to seize the attention of this cosmopolitan gathering of people that have made their way in the day of Pentecost, perhaps the greatest of all the universal festivals for fellow travelers to experience in Jerusalem. He timed it not only for the apostles, he timed it likewise for all the travelers. They began to speak in other tongues. as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when you and I read about tongues, we have to compare that, and you can do it on your own, to what's described, say, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What you and I are going to find here in these verses is that this will be a one-step process of communication, not a two-step process of communication. In Jerusalem, they will, in one tongue, immediately begin to communicate to the people who speak all kinds of languages, but now they are collected in one setting. However, in 1 Corinthians 14, there's a two-step process where an interpreter was needed to be able to explain what it was that God was saying. 
God in his sovereign purposes chose a one-stop process, no middleman at this point, so that they would hear directly the good news that Jesus Christ had died for their sins. These people from all walks of life who've made their way in this pilgrimage to Jerusalem at this point. Deal Moody. Moody was to have had an evangelistic campaign in England. An elderly pastor who was rather cynical said, why do we need Moody? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? But a younger, wiser pastor got up and responded, no, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Does God have a monopoly on your life? Does he have the keys to all the rooms of your life? Or are you hanging on to one or two or three keys saying, but that room's mine, not God's? No. Wind. Fire. Various utterances. All from these local Galileans. You've seen the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit in 1 through 4. But now you're up to verse 5 and ready for our, our second aspect of this great revival. Because secondly, I want you to notice with me the effect of the work by the Holy Spirit. So beginning in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Development. Doesn't mean they're saved. It means they're religious. Got to understand each and every gathering that we have in our congregation. People are coming together. Doesn't mean they're born again but they're being exposed to truth week by week by week as we think seriously about what God has done through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So these are devout people. And what I want you to see here is what comes next from every nation under heaven. Now, back in Genesis chapter 11, there was what was known as the Tower of Babel. You know the story. They were attempting to build this great tower as a name for themselves. What did God do? He confused the languages. In the very next chapter in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abram and says, I will bless the nations through you. What you now see in Pentecost is Babel in reverse. God is now taking all the various language groups, and people have been scattered. And now, in essence, what God is saying, and now Abraham's seed is going to bless the nations. But now they've come to Jerusalem. And they're speaking all these various languages. See what God's doing sovereignly? Just as he scattered the people and varied the languages in Genesis chapter 11, now he gathers the people and unifies through the languages in Acts chapter 2. This is God's work at hand. Devout men. They're religious. Every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they are bewildered. They're confused because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What fascinates us now, you're up to verse 6, is that the word language in the Greek is dialectos. 
from which you get the word dialect. In other words, Peter, James, and John, and so on, are not only speaking the language, they are speaking the very dialect of the languages of this cosmopolitan gathering of people that have made their way in their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Are you astounded? Now, God had told them to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But before we find them out in the scattered sense doing that, we already see that God is at work utilizing them in the gathered sense doing that. Are you amazed? You see now how Genesis is coming together with Acts chapter 2? The language is divided, now the language is unified. People together where? In the epicenter, place where Jesus Christ was sentenced, the outskirts of which he would die for your sins and mine. Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Back then to that handhood. Peter Bowler, was it an accident in time or an appointment with time? Meets a John Wesley. John Wesley, in turn, works with a man named George Whitfield, maybe the greatest evangelist outside, say, of Billy Graham in all history. In fact, throughout New England, there are various settings known as Whitfield or Whitefield, depending upon what you prefer. But they were known as Whitfields in that time period. These were settings where Whitfield would go and speak and the populations would come together and listen to the power of the gospel presentation of George Whitfield as he shared the good news of Jesus Christ. Our family lived for a period of time in Middletown, Connecticut. And there, a church historian told us that is where Whitfield had an open air gathering and thousands of people descended upon that setting and they were coming day upon day upon day from long distances in order to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And revival was breaking out. Now, here you have it. Revival was breaking out. They were amazed. They were astonished. They were saying, and this is what happens when awakenings occur. Question. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, they can't get their heads wrapped around this thing. And these, these fishermen, they never even ventured out of their region, let alone out of the country. And here we come from other countries for this great festival, and they're talking our, not merely our language, they're talking our dialect. Now what God desires to do when he does a great work is that he desires to communicate. And so no matter where you're coming from, no matter your education, no matter your experience, God wants to work in you, work through you, to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for our sins. So now, to repeat themselves was still another question. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native, literally, dialectos, dialect? This is the reversal of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. If you take a deep breath, you're stunned by the way in which God is operating. Such a revival happened in Wales in 1904. A newspaper man went down from London to report firsthand what was happening with the Welsh revival. 
there's a clip here that tells me on their arrival in Wales, one of the master policemen where the Welsh revival was. And the officer, standing up to his full height, placed his hand over his heart and said, Sir, the Welsh revival is inside this uniform. Now God does these works of renewal in his time for his glory. And so you're up now to verse 9. And what I want you to see here is, depending upon the geographer's take, either 15 or 16 different settings are being described. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome. Think the book of Romans. God was already prepping that population where this population here in Jerusalem will go back to Rome, start sharing what God had done in Jerusalem now, so that when Paul would eventually minister to the Roman population, we would be able to have a running start on God's grace. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You've made your way to Washington, D.C., you're tracking the various moments in history. The end of the Civil War, when the news of Appomattox came, the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, he had this written from the dome of the Capitol, a transparency. These words from Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118.23. They're forced in their own languages to start to grapple with this might not be coming from these men. This might be a work of God. When people look at you, they need to see the work of God. God's grace offered the effect of this work by the Holy Spirit. But now in this very distinctive revival in history, one more aspect needs to be unpacked. Because out of verses 12 and 13, as you and I consider the greatest of all biblical revivals, note thoroughly the response to this work by the Holy Spirit. And beginning in verse 12, we are told, all were amazed. The same word was used previously. Yet they're perplexed. You're going to come across both religious as well as secularly perplexed, confused people as to why am I here, what's going on, and where is all this headed anyways when it comes to matters of this world? What does this mean? But God has positioned you where you are at, in whatever settings, work-wise, neighborhood-wise, you find yourself in, to be able to respond to that type of question, what does this mean? Where is this headed? But you see, there's going to be the cynics. We'll see them when we get to Acts 17 in Athens, but here even in Jerusalem, highly religious setting, there are others mocking 
and said they are filled with new wine. And Luke, the physician, is so brilliant in his, in his usage of words. This was a specific kind of wine called a sweetened wine used particularly for feasts such as Pentecost. Amazed? Holy Spirit, symbolically, is typically viewed as in terms of the imagery of the dove, such as when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. In Gordon Bronville's symbol of the Holy Spirit, he tells about the great Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen, first to discover the magnetic meridian of the North Pole, as well as to discover the South Pole. A writer tells us on one of his trips, Amundsen took a honing pigeon with him. And when he had finally reached the top of the world, he opened the bird's cage and set it free. Time went on. And one day, Amundsen's wife, back in Norway, looked up from the doorway of her home and saw the homing pigeon circling in the sky above. Her first words, he's alive. Which is what the Holy Spirit was communicating through these local Galileans. This Jesus who died on that cross, he's alive. Take this seriously. Put your faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. Accident in time? No. Appointment with time. A Peter Bowler. Small gathering in Germany shares the result of the revival. Good news with a John Wesley on a ship. Wesley, in turn, ministers to a Whitfield. Whitfield makes his way to the colonies. Whitfield shares the good news of Jesus Christ. All this happening out of a small gathering of people in a setting called Hanhut, but it would so dramatically shape the colonies that as a result, it, in turn, would impact the Revolutionary War, where countless people had their eyes open to the good news of Jesus Christ, who died in our cross, our place, saved us from our sins. And the result was we were liberated, set free. Jesus paid the price. He's alive. And that's what was being communicated then and now. Let's stand together. Work powerfully not only in these services today, thanking you, Father, for the way in which worship has unfolded and songs are sung. Tonight as well, in the gathering. In out of it, Father, we're praying that something of high significance will develop because you're not only thinking about the present, you're thinking about the future and how all these things fit together to make high impact for your glory. So, Father, as you used Calvary, 
as you used Pentecost in the visual aids necessary to capture people's attention. I pray now, Father, you'll use this congregation powerfully, unitedly, one accord, as people's attention is being captured by the Holy Spirit regarding who Jesus is and what he wants to do in their lives. And for this, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.